Good evening, everyone. Welcome, ladies. Thank you for visiting. Usually we ask for questions at this time, but um, let me say a little something to those of you who are fairly relatively unfamiliar with our tradition practice, um, much of which centers around uh, kirtan, which is the type of um, chant and call and response that we just uh, participated in, and uh, which for the most part uh, involves invoking various names of God. I think that um, every uh, religious tradition in the world holds that uh, that the uh, that the logos, the name uh, of God, is divine and has some kind of power in it. Um, I think the Islamic faith, they have like 99 names of God, I think, that they believe, that, that, it, that they chant on a, on a, like a rosary. Catholics have rosaries. We have rosaries too, <laughs> which we also chant the names of God on the rosaries in mantra form. But um, in the Christian tradition also, I believe the Bible begins with something like that. In the beginning there was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was one with with the God. So there's some idea that the name, the Logos, Logos means name and it also means, well, Logos, like logic, reason. It means that there's some, there's some math, if you will, that underlies the aesthetic uh, experience and expression of invoking the sacred name or sound. Um, so it's held, as they say in Christianity, such in the Jewish faith, it is said that the name of God is so um, pure that you, no one should chant it. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> it's a little different, but it's a, it's a similar principle, if you will. Um, <clears throat> so these are a few of the major traditions. Of course, Hinduism as well um, uh, holds uh, that the name of God is sacred or that there's a divine logos by which invoking one can have the experience of um, of a kind of a loving unification with our source, if you will. We're kind of looked at as lost uh, and searching. That sounds pretty familiar, <laughs> probably, <laughs> at least in some point of our life. And then we think we found it, and then we find ourselves searching again often as well. So what we search for really in all of our pursuits in one sense is is happiness or the kind of knowledge that will inform action by which we'll become perfectly happy. Mm-hmm. So everyone in one sense pursuing the same thing, happiness. And we want happiness of an enduring nature, not of a flickering nature. The unfortunate situation in which we find ourselves, however, is that for the most part we try to find enduring happiness in relation to things that don't endure. That's not real bright, but that's what we do. <laughs> and even though we say it in common English parlance that uh, things of the world are here today and gone tomorrow, we keep chasing after them as if there's no tomorrow. Hmm. And thinking that by acquiring a few more, everything's going to be in place, and uh, and uh, we'll find that 
that sense of comfort, happiness, fulfillment that we're seeking. So this is a different idea here. Um, rather than um, pursuing with our tongue, with our ears, with our sense of sight and touch, smell and taste, things of the world, uh, things, we think that the best things in life are not things. Hmm? Rather, it is that which gives things meaning that is more important than the things themselves. Hmm? You follow me? So things are given meaning. What's out there, if you will, is given meaning and shape by something that's in here, that's observing it, that's construing it to be one thing or another, and what it means to you, something might mean something else to, from an insect's perspective or even from another human's perspective. Hmm? So the point being only that what's more important than the things out there is that inside of us that's perceiving it, make, trying to make sense out of it, positing meaning in it, um, when really all the meaning and all the value lies with the observer. Hmm? Because if matter mattered independent of consciousness, who would know about it? Who would care? Who would say it mattered? Hmm? So the point being is that consciousness, the observer that we are, is what, what matters and where meaning comes from, value. Hmm? But we are constantly in pursuit of meaning and value in things that we posit value in rather than turning within, so to speak, in a disciplined way to really get to know the most elusive, yet most used word in the English language. The most used word in the English language is I, and it's the least understood word in the English language or any other language as well. What am I? I said the other night, they say we've gone to the moon, we've gone to Mars. What were we looking for? We're really only looking for ourselves, wherever we go. And did we find it on the moon? <laughs> no? Well, go, let's try Mars. <laughs> but we we even fail to realize that it's our self that we're looking for. <laughs> and we construct a self out of things, even, ignoring the constructor, if you will, within. So yoga uh, is a spiritual discipline for going within and validating through experience, first-person experience, that, that what's important is this self that lies within, that is independent of things and thoughts. Hmm? We're preoccupied with things, and we think about them with things and thoughts. Meditation is meant to take us beyond thoughts, beyond things and the thoughts about things, hmm? and turn our thoughts inward that they may be a tool, an instrument for bringing out the real knower, the real experiencer. Hmm? That is neither this nor that. I often say that we think I am this or I am that. I am Canadian 
or I am American, or I am Costa Rican, I am fat, I am thin, I am man, I am woman. Woman. All these things can change, right? I could be Costa Rican, I could change, I could become an American. I could be a Canadian, I wouldn't do it, and I'd change become an American, but uh, <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> uh, so, you can change your, your gender, hmm? Um, and uh, sex, and even biological sexuality through medical uh, uh, adjustment and so on and so forth. So, the things, many of the things that I think I am, I am this or I am that, are in flux, and they could change. But the fact that I am doesn't change in all of that. So while there's this changing identification with this or that, who, what is it that's doing the identification with something that's changing? Then it, it isn't really what I am. Hmm? So yoga is about finding, experiencing that, bringing that out, hmm? and um, and in our particular school of yoga, which is within Hinduism, it's called bhakti yoga, and um, that means a yoga of love. It said, if you love someone, they'll tell you all their secrets. So by that we we reason that love is the best way of knowing. There's things that you can know by loving that you could never know otherwise. So we approach the whole of reality with a loving disposition. And one of the ways in which we express our love for the entirety of reality is through invoking the names of God, as is done in other traditions, as I mentioned. So it is within Hinduism, and particularly within the bhakti, or the devotional, the love yoga tradition, uh, of uh, w- 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 within Hinduism, so Krishna is a name for God, Ram is a name for God, Hari is a name for God, and so forth. And they have their their meanings um, etymologically and and so forth. Like Jehovah has a meaning, Allah has a meaning, Almighty One, um, Buddha has a meaning, the Enlightened One. Hmm? Krishna is a name for God that refers kind of to the re- romantic heart of the Absolute. We're not polytheistic in our perspective, but we think that the Godhead singular absolute manifests in a variety of ways hmm, to express its, itself in relation to different approaches. Hmm. Um, so the Buddha approach, for example, is a wisdom tradition, and um, the very word, the name Buddha means like Buddha like a light bulb by going on here. Uh, Buddhi means like in intellect. Hmm? So enlightened. Hmm? The Buddha. Um, uh, and that's, of course, I- 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 important. Krishna, the name Krishna, however, refers more to, if you were to look at the Godhead as some kind of like, has a head, has a has a arms, legs, has a heart. And so... And, and so different manifestations of the same Godhead represent different aspects of the anatomy of God. The Krishna name refers to the heart, the romantic heart of God. Hmm? Um, And it's very conducive, understood philosophically and theologically, which is volumes and volumes of books have been written about. Uh, But basically speaking, the name Krishna being... Identified with the, with with the heart of God, God depicted as 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 as, as Nietzsche, the, the 
German philosopher uh, uh, of the previous century said, if there was a god, he'd be a dancer. Hmm? Krishna is the dancer. <laughs> he's a god. He's dancing. Hmm? And he's dancing under the influence of bhakti. Bhakti means the approach of, of love. As I said, if you, if, you, if you love someone, they'll tell you all their secrets. So if we approach God for things, oh, that could be pretty boring to him. You can have them, okay. But it's not very exciting to ask God for things. For God's point of view, to ask for things is like, you're not a thing and you want things. And things get in the way of, of knowing what you are. But if you want, okay. Other people want to get away from things and have shanti, shanti, peace, peace. So you can get that too. But our approach is not that I want things or I want to get away from things. When I say things, I mean I want things means I want things of this world means I have attachments which means I have to stay within the world where things come and go, things come and go. You understand? If I have attachments and my identity arises out of those attachments, as it does, I'm attached to one thing or another thing and another and another, that builds an identity. For my sense of my, what is mine, a sense of I arises as well. But nothing is really ours, we can't keep it. So the I that arises out of that can't be maintained either. This is a false I. So attachment to things in the pursuit of happiness is a recipe for suffering because you can't keep the things. So if you like them, that's great. But when you realize you can't keep them, it doesn't make it really good because they're going to break your heart in due course. So, so that's why the Buddha reasons, better to go naked, practically speaking. Sit under the tree. Don't worry about things out there. Just go with go go within, be peaceful, get away from things. So, th- attachment to things is an attachment to to the in, to the temporal, to which is here today and gone tomorrow. And in the context of that that pursuit, it appears as if we're here today and we'll be gone tomorrow. Uh oh, we better do something about it. So we have to struggle with one another to avoid that. Mm-hmm. And so there, are, so there are Republicans and Democrats in the United States. Mm-hmm. And liberals and conservatives and Russians and Europeans and and, and all these um, adversarial um, positions that we, we we take in the world to maintain a sense of I that can't be maintained hmm? to try to live forever in a realm that we see daily the world is telling us it's temporary hmm? it's temporary hmm? so some people wise people like the Buddha thought. Why shall I pursue things? Let me pursue giving up things. And who is it that can give up the things? If there's an identity that arises out of attachment to things, it's false. What is that identity that can give up those things and deconstruct that false identity? That's a higher identity, if you will. And that is an identity that endures beyond the coming and goings of things, of appearances. So from the temporal 
to the eternal, nirvana, hmm? to the eternal, was the idea. So some approach God for things, some approach God to get away from things. Hmm? It's a crude way of putting it, but some people pursue material life, some people pursue eternal life in a wise way, not just a sentimental way. I want to live forever and I keep pursuing things <laughs> that don't endure in a very wise way, and it's radical. The Buddha's a radical fellow. I mean, he went and sat under the, the Bodhi tree, and that was it. Uh, not easy to follow. Hmm? Right? If we conclude today that the pursuance of things is the whole problem, how easy it will be for you tomorrow to go sit under a tree, <laughs> under the Pachoti tree, or under the Teak tree here, forever. You can make, you can, we can nod our head and go, yeah, that's true. You see, but the Buddha got in his head and said it's true, and then he went and did it. How it's very difficult to act. We go, yes, it's true, but <laughs> so this is the force of attachment. It has, it has momentum, right? It has momentum. I've been moving in a certain direction for a long time, and now I learn you're going the wrong direction. Okay, I can't just put it in reverse. I'm going, you know, full speed ahead, floor to the pedal in in overdrive. And I find that I'm going in the wrong direction. So I've got to stop for a minute and I've got to think, where am I going to turn around? And so, so, but the Buddha just, like, that's it. He just jumped out, you know, sat under the tree. Very radical. Um, hard example to follow. But that's it. We've talked about two things, the pursuance of things and the getting away from things. But each of these is an appeal to the greater reality beyond ourself, that we might get the things from it, we might get away from the things. But what about loving that source rather than asking for one thing or another, to have things or get away from things? That's a very different, a third approach. You understand? Hmm? You see, the problem of trying to avoid suffering and trying to acquire happiness is really resolved in bhakti, in service. Because if my ideal and my identity is that I am the servant, if you love someone, you want to serve them. You love your kids, you want to serve them, you want to do things for them, right? It's very it's very natural. Or your spouse, or whatever may be the case. Hmm? So, in love, every mother knows is is born out of is 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 born from the womb of sacrifice. Hmm? So, underneath love is this sacrifice. We can talk about love in a kind of a in a flowery way and so forth, but it's it's actually that there's 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 it is beautiful, but the path to arrive at it, so to speak, is is more described as sacrifice. Which whoa, that's a little heavy. But love's a beautiful thing, and it's and, 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 and the sacrifice ultimately dissolves in its pursuit, as the, as that labor becomes, as they say, a labor of love. So, in a labor of love, in what bhakti is really all about, as an approach to the Godhead, is it? Let me approach the Godhead on the Godhead's terms. Let me serve my source, and let me be a servant of my source then if that's my objective and that's my identity, that's my ideal, then it really doesn't matter 
what the circumstances are. Hmm? I'll give you an example that I've given to some of you before. There's a man who works for us here who was born on the property. It's a long story how we got it. It's a beautiful story. Um, how we acquired the property and helped out the farmer who who owns it and uh, and so forth. But one of his sons, born on the property, he's about 10 years younger than me. I'm 68 this year. He works for us a few days a week. So he's a laborer, a peone, they're called here in Spanish. And um, and so one day I had him digging, uh, and we usually work along with him, but for the infrastructure to put in pipes for water underground so that you could have showers over the hill over there and so forth. Uh, and I could in my cottage as well. And so I thought, well, the next day he came, that was hard work. Let me give him something easy to do today. So I said, Juan, I'll give you something easy to do today because yesterday you were working hard. And he said to me, Swami, it doesn't matter whether the work's hard or easy, whether it's difficult or easy. My whole, my job is to please you, that's all. My job is to please So it was very beautiful and insightful kind of statement. He's basically saying exactly what bhakti is. In other words, his whole life is to trying to avoid suffering, hard things, and find easy things, happy things. Mm-hmm. And, but it, it, it's resolved in, in this simple kind of uh, common sense, but common sense isn't common kind of approach. Let me serve and as a, as a serv- servitor of the Absolute, whether the service is difficult or whether it's easy, that's not the issue. The issue is, will it please the person I'm trying to serve? Hmm? If that's the focus, then it really doesn't, doesn't, those things have no bearing. This is what yoga is about in one sense. It's, we're constantly moving in this way, trying to avoid distress and find happiness, like an ocean of, of waves. So to try to bring this in balance, hmm? somehow or other, you could try to do that by stop desiring. That's pretty hard. Stop moving. Sit under the Buddha tree, the Bodhi tree. Stop desiring. Stop moving. Uh, but we are moving with some momentum in another direction. So that's hard to do. But in bhakti, we can continue to move because love is actually um, not still. And it's not without trouble. <laughs> It said we that we move in life and we cannot rest until we find love. And when we find love, we can't rest either because it has an orbit of its own that we're on. Hmm? And it has ups and downs and, and so forth, but you don't want to get off. So I'm just using a material example, but love is active. Hmm? And so we are presently active in pursuit of things for the most part. Now we could be active in pursuit of things to use for for our God. So like here in the temple, for example, in the ashram, we grow food. Hmm? We grow rice, we grow dal, beans, fruits, nuts, some vegetables, and so forth, just like everybody else around here. Hmm? But then we take it, and we, 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 we prepare it in the kitchen, in a particular way, in a particular spirit and con- consciousness, with mantra and so forth, and then we offer it to the, uh, the on, on the altar, hmm? and and then what's left over, then we we, we we live off the remnants, like we're servants. 
something like that. And so we can do everything, everything that an ordinary person does, we can do in such a way that it becomes yoga. Hmm? In, when your yoga is the yoga of love, because love involves all of your senses. Hmm? If you're in love, just using a material example, all of your senses are are, are satisfied. <laughs> so it's a very, uh, I want to say, uh, user-friendly type of yoga, because now we can continue to pursue things, but rather than for ourselves, for someone that we understand is our source, and and just like, for example, from a for use of a bodily analogy, I have a stomach. We all do. We have hands. Um, we have legs. We have tongues. We have eyes. Right. So, with my legs, I walk, and with my hands, I plant and pick the fruits for example, hmm? and with my eyes I, and so forth, then I come back, then I, with those instruments, I prepare some, the fruit, let's say, and then I put it on my tongue, right? And my tongue sends it to my stomach. So all of these things, the hands, the legs, the eyes, the tongue, they're all serving the stomach. That's where it all goes to, right? They're all the servants, and the stomach is the enjoyer, so to speak. It all goes there, hmm? Now, if the tongue says, you know, hey, hand, why should we give this to the stomach all the time? You keep half, and I'll keep half. This isn't a recipe for a healthy body, right? So all the the tongue, the hands, the legs, they all have to serve the stomach. And the stomach has this unique quality that it can take the food and then transform it in such a way that the the tongue, the hands, the legs, will all be nourished in a way they couldn't under themselves if they were to try to take advantage of the fruit. Hmm? So the goddess is something like this, is the idea, the center. Hmm? By giving there to our source, then we'll be nourished. If on a, if on a vine there are leaves, blossoms, hmm? they will be nourished if we pour water on the root of the vine, not on each blossom. Hmm? So, our same energy that we might use, one might use uh, materially to try to defend and preserve this false self that comes out of attachments and so forth, we give up attachments for things by recognizing that they belong to somebody else rather than just say, they're not mine. That's half the truth. But do they belong to anybody? Is there any purpose? Is there a center, in other words? So in bhakti we say, yes, there is. So, if the problem is that I'm attached to things that aren't really mine, that I can't really keep, one of the easiest way to overcome uh, acting and thinking and, and acting as if something belongs to me when it doesn't is to find out who it belongs to. If you're a little bit honest and you find that, oh, this belongs to somebody else, then, oh, I could have enjoyed it for myself, but it doesn't belong to me. Somebody, okay, i am give it to that person. <laughs> something like that. So if we can find out through reason the things don't really belong to us. I mean, by experience, we can't keep them. It's like a no-brainer. Okay, they're not really. I'm a renter here. You know, that's not really mine. I, I can figure that out. Hmm? But then to conclude they don't belong to anybody, and I should just sit under under a tree and stop pursuing them, and then my full sense of identity will come. 
some more full sense of identity will real identity will come from that than than pursuing the things but is there more to life and to love than knowing that attachment to things is is a recipe for suffering is there more to love than giving up taking certainly that's part of love so what so in it, our, and and don't we live for love hmm? more or less yeah that's what we're pursuing some idea of it. So in bhakti, it's a very yoga of love. And so all the things that are involved in love are involved in bhakti, but the center is different. Hmm? So it's the easy kind of a thing. You just like, let's say you have a building, hmm? and there's a problem. There's no problem with the building, but there's a problem with the foundation. Okay, well, it is possible to just jack up the building and take out the foundation and put a new one in. Hmm? So that's kind of, it's hard. <laughs> it's not the easiest thing to do, but it's better than starting all over again and having to build a whole building as well. So they do that. Hmm? You know, you go to sell your house and you find, then they have the thing in the check for dry rot and termites, and then you find out, we've got termites. Honey, you know, $10,000 worth. Yeah. Uh, so then you fix it and, you know, tear down the whole building. So, so similar idea. Bhakti is, you know, everything's in place. We we love with our senses, with our minds, by by exercising them in, in so many ways, um, in servants, service, and so forth. But the foundation is wrong. It, it, we're serving and trying to love something that won't, that doesn't exist in, in an enduring sense, and is mean spirited. It's a taker. The eye that I have now is a taker. So give up that eye. I want to become a lover. If I want to become a lover, then I have to have a conception of the Godhead who's a lover as well. Hmm? A lover, a dancer. Dancer means a kind of movement that's not obligatory. Dancing is not obligatory. Dancing is celebratory. There's a big difference. So karma, everyone's heard the term, really means movement, action, in relation to things that don't endure, which brings a reaction, which obliges me, then, to work. In other words, as they say in the Bible, you've sown, and now you have to re- reap the results. So there's there's some results, and then an ob- obligation. Hmm? So in karma, we move out of obligation. In other words, you've sown, and now this is what you've reaped, and you've got to deal with it. Hmm? You're obliged to deal with it. And there's no way around it. It's coming. You don't know where it's coming, but it's coming from my past and something I've done. And now it's accruing in a form of a manifest result. And I've got to deal with it. I can't just avoid it. <laughs> so this is this is the movement in this world. It's obligatory. And it's, it's a struggle. Hmm? So again, to use the Buddha example, the Buddha wants to stop this obligatory work by stop desiring stop taking then there'll be if my actions are not of a taking nature there'll be no repercussions so stop breathing stop be a breatharian hmm? vegetarian breatharian <laughs> so, <laughs> how do you do that exactly <laughs> and you got to breathe at some point if it's even if it's once a month hmm? something like so uh, <laughs> so bhakti by contrast hmm? again, is movement out of love. 
so that Godhead is depicted as not being still, but moving and dancing. And dancing is a kind of movement that, I say, that as I say, is not obligatory, but celebratory. It's of a different nature. Hmm? So there's something called lila, and there's something called karma. Both are movement. Lila means the play of the Absolute. So you're seeing perhaps, perhaps artistic depictions of Krishna playing, dancing, playing the flute. He's, he's depicting an, an idea of an Absolute, a divinity that has, has no obligation and only celebrating its own nature and in the context of celebrating that, inviting us to participate in it as well. Hmm? It's celebrating in bhakti itself, in, in love itself, so, this is a <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> Forgive me, but this is this is something about our our, our our yoga, and and very simply, as we said in the beginning, all the different religious traditions basically uh, uh, attribute some type of power and divinity, sacredness to the to the logos, the divine logos, to, to the name of God. We do as well. We we agree with them, and we've developed. The idea, not, I mean, it's a tradition for thousands of years that we're in, but it's the idea that's been developed. So there's a whole theology as to the power of the of the name, and then there are different names of God that refer to different aspects of God that can be invoked at different times for different different uh, purposes, and so on and so forth. Um, but it's a very natural uh, expression of love to sing about the qualities, the name, form, attributes, and so forth, of the one you one you love. Hmm? So that's kind of what we're, we're doing here, <laughs> simply. And it has a profound um, uh, result that transcends whatever you could get by material acquisition or whatever you could arrive at by giving up the pursuit of material acquisition. Let me put it like this in conclusion. It's one thing... to try to own and control things, only to find out that you can't control everything and nothing belongs to you, which might then be depressing. But it could be replaced with knowing and being the friend of the person that actually controls and knows everything. And then you're... <laughs> what, then what position are you in? If, I'm, if I don't own anything and I can't control anything in an absolute sense but then I'm f- the friend of the person who owns and controls everything I'm in a better position <laughs> hmm? so it's something like that this, uh, bhakti is something like that get, get to know the person who knows and controls everything that, on a friendly basis in a, on loving terms then you, you've got no, no problems There's nothing to worry about what will be lacking for you yoga chimam bhamiyam he will provide so we put this into practice. These are ancient teachings you can find in the Bhagavad Gita, in the Upanishads, the, the Puranas, the sacred texts of the Hindus, for example. And they show up in other religious traditions with different language. More or less the same ideas are found in the mystic traditions. Hmm? What we do here is we put it into practice to validate it through experience. Hmm? And it's a very, it's an intense kind of yoga. But we, but we, what we get, we get the experience. We validate experientially what is talked about theoretically, and then we get just a tiny little experience of that, 
It outshines and outweighs the entirety of all of our experiences of happiness and and contentment and fulfillment put together that we've had in our whole life. It's almost as if everybody's experience of contentment for a moment or fulfillment or happiness or love put together in the whole world in a big syringe, if you could inject it in yourself, it doesn't compare to one even moment's experience of what the self is. It's sat, chit, ananda. It exists in an enduring way. It's a it's a it's a unit of knowing, the kind of knowing that arriving at one feels there's nothing else to be known. I know what I am now, and I'm eternal, and I experience it. I experience that I'm eternal. You can't imagine. I mean, you just try to. How can you? What can you say about it? I experience that I'm eternal. Yes, and my body will die and everything. Yeah, but I experience that I'm eternal. How how like settling could that be? Hmm? And that I'm and that there's a and there's a kind of knowing. So chit satchit and ananda, bliss, love, hmm? the bliss, the love inherent in the self. What to speak of the the, the love and the bliss that it can be derived from the self's expressing itself and its love in relation to its source. This even greater bliss. So we, we, we live for this kind of noetic uh, bliss, a knowing kind of bliss that retires the need to know other things unless they're useful for, for the... For the, for the to employ in the same service that uh, our, our yoga is constituted of, hmm? confirmed. So, a few thoughts. Any questions? What's the time? Okay, question. Can you talk about why poetry is used by many traditions to express the experience? Pardon me? What's the question? Yeah. Yeah. Well, poetry, uh, music, song, um, um, these are um, languages, expressions that um, foster um, participation in reality. Science, math, Math is a descriptive language, but it's not a participatory language. It may describe something as to the nature of the world, but in the context of the language, we may take a fact from the math and then participate, but it's it's rather descriptive. Poetry is, of course, describes something, but it describes it in a way that... that, that, um, that Fosters uh, participation, and and also and also um, I want to say that poetry and song they are ways in which through expression we can come closer to capturing, so to speak, 
the reality that there is that 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 reality itself is more than what meets the eye and the mind. Hmm? So in poetry, for example, we can the moon, as I sometimes say, can have wings, right, and fly across the sky. Hmm? Poetry makes life bigger than it appears just through the eye. Hmm? Uh, the arts, same principle, drama. In the movie, they lived heavily, happily ever after. Hmm? So through, through, through these types of artistic uh, expressions, hmm, we can come closer to uh, 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 describing or depicting a world that exceeds what the eye says it is. Hmm? And we sense that the world is, is more than what meets the eye, that there's more meaning to it, there's more purpose to it. We have, we have a sense of it. And so we live for that. We live for the, for the more. We, live for, for really, we really all live for transcending the limitations, hmm? what, the apparent limitations. We live for going you know, one ten thousandth of the second faster than any other human and winning a gold medal. <laughs> And every time we, 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 we break a barrier, we, we, we go beyond the perceived limitations. This is celebrated. This is what everybody in life is doing, celebrating these, these moments where we... Ex- you, know, you look on the Internet and you find, you know, like on Facebook, people always showing these things, of animals doing things that you thought, you know, only humans did or something like that. Yeah. And we, so all, all these exceptions, the magic so to speak, hmm? where we exceed hmm? and then we explain it. Hmm? Now we have to exceed it again. Hmm? <laughs> to, stay, to be happy, we have to exceed it. So poetry is kind of a language where we, we, can, we can talk about uh, reality, in even the world, nature, in a sense, in, in a way that um, is not just described, just the facts, ma'am, hmm? This connects with this. This connects with, but, but the way in which the soul feels it should be, the atma, the self consciousness in human life, it ha- it's feel it's starting to feel itself, because mm-hmm. in human life we have self reflection, right? We have philosophical questions. We ask the question why. The animals aren't asking why, they're asking how, but not why. So when we evolve to human life, this question, why, comes meaning, purpose, value, um, qualities, not just quantities. Hmm? Um, and so the descriptions of the world through poetry, they, they tend to make it more like what we are, something that transcends the limitations of the world. Hmm? We're really positing things on the natural world that pertain to ourself. We have no limitations, hmm? materially. They're only perceived. Hmm? I mean, if we're be, if if we're eternal, it means we're beyond time and space. So we're not limited by time and space. So then, so then, when we when we try to speak about 
when we speak through poetry, typically we make time and space longer or bigger or more accommodating because, again, they lived happily ever after. It happens only in the movies, so to speak. So what we're really doing there is we're really expressing what we're what the self is kind of quietly whispering to us about my it's my time now it's my time i've been in animal form i've been in bird form i've been in tree form now i'm in human form hmm? now the why question which is pertinent to me not to nature is being asked nature can't ask why answer why why is a consciousness question not a material question hmm? So the self is asking about itself, and then so so then we we tend to look at and think of and hope that the world would be bigger. We're really hoping that 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 reality is what we're actually constituted of. Hmm? We don't realize we're doing that. So that's that being the case. At any rate. Um, um, when we actually talk about divinity, um, transcendence, um, and the, 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 the reality that the limitations of time and space are only a only perception, and all these philosophical truths and so forth. I mean, we have a philosophical language, we speak about it, and then we have a poetic language as well. But the poetic language is like the Bhagavad is composed of po- poetry. It's it's like what can you say about Krishna? What could you? How much? You can't put it into words. So you need words that are bigger and do more, and and have other implications, uh, and, and layered meanings and so forth. So something something like that. Does that help? Yeah. <laughs> what else? Yes. In some of your writings and. Your lectures have spoken about uh, four expressions of love in this path. Love as a parent, a lover, a friend, and a worshiper. <coughs> Student, yeah. So how does that play out in terms of Vaishnavites' actual practice? There are different Vaishnavites who express that differently. What are they doing on a day-to-day basis? How is their practice different? Well, that pertains to higher stages of practice, for the most part. Higher stages of practice, because the beginning stages of practice require removing negative influences. Hmm? In the in the context of removing the negative influences, just like I've given an example, if you want to uh, redecorate your house, first you've got to clean it all. So you come in and throw everything out and clean it. Then you start putting a picture on this wall, a new piece of furniture over there, and so forth. So there are different stages, and the beginning several stages are more or less about cleansing and so forth. Now that said, um, the practices that we engage in, we come from somewhere, so they come from with from the tradition, from the lineage, and from a teacher in the lineage. So the teacher in the lineage has some acquaintance with the higher side of loving God, for example, as a friend or as a lover, something like that, as you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And so what he or she conveys through the teaching is that that sentiment, that that experience is also conveyed subtly 
in, invariably to the students, hmm? and it forms like a, like an impression on on the, on the, on the consciousness that is indelible, if you will. And so, as the consciousness is cleansed, that impression, that rag, hmm, uh, becomes like one's own. And so, if I have a teacher who's absorbed, for example, in in loving Krishna as a friend, then um, if that's the prominent influence in my life, hmm, dominant spiritual influence in my life, then then as the cleansing goes on, then that sentiment was going to arise, that positive decoration, if you will, that that sentiment is going to rise within me. And as it arises within me to love Krishna as a friend, there are things that the teacher can tell us to help us to cultivate that, to pursue that. Hmm? But it's also such that love has kind of a knowing. Hmm? You know, uh, you might kind of, you know, like some, some like a girl falls in love with a young guy and she what should I do, Mom? You know, I, I love him. You know, well, it's kind of you kind of know what to do, but you could do this. You know, maybe wear this dress. You know, because he likes red. You know, or something. Yeah, <laughs> little coaching or something like that. But pretty much, you know, you know. Um, so, so there's some coaching that can go on. But this is in a, for the higher stages. What we need to know is that if if ideally we you know we we study the tradition, we like it. Say it's a bhakti tradition. And in the Bhakti tradition, there are different sentiments, like loving Krishna as a lover or as a friend. And there are different teachers that represent the different sentiments. So then I think, oh, I identify with that sentiment, so I, I'll go th- take this teacher and so forth. That's a wise w- approach to the sadhana. But sometimes we get involved and we don't know everything. But then the teacher tells us, reveals to us gradually and and what's really going on is that you're getting indoctrinated into a particular type of love of Krishna. And it's uh, it's happening kind of um, invisibly. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's just a product of the nature of the association you have. So as you, if you associate with alcoholics, you probably drink. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you associate with people who love Krishna as a friend, you you probably develop that kind of love, love too. But in the early stages of practice, the only way that it has... Um, an influence is to think of it like this is my ideal. Uh, that I have to understand it philosophically and theologically. To really, to say this is my ideal, you have to understand what it is. So, uh, so we get the theory, and we think we chant our mantra. My, I've been given this mantra by my guru, and through the chanting of this mantra, my ideal is is to enter into the lila, the celebratory movement of the absolute. As a friend, this is, this is this is my kind of focus, and I chant my mantra in that way. Is that what this is? Yeah. Well, in our Gaudiya lineage, there are two. There, there are two dominant influences: to love Krishna as a friend, or to love Krishna romantically. Mm-hmm. So those and there's there's divisions within that as well. But, but my Guru Maharaj mm-hmm. was. Uh, his ideal was to love Krishna as a friend. So, you can imagine I'm influenced by that. Okay. So, nice to sit with all of you, and um, for tonight we'll stop there. Shishidaji Gopal Ki Jai, Gauri Vaishnava Guru Parampara Ki Jai.